Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. It says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children." Now, as we can see from what we just see in the beginning of chapter 14, not long after Herod had put John the Baptist to death, he hears about the fame of Jesus. Because the way the story reads, John the Baptist has already been put to death when he hears about the fame of Jesus. And when he hears about the fame of Jesus, he assumes that it's actually John the Baptist back from the dead, not reincarnated. That would take too long. Or maybe a ghost, but... He thinks that, that John the Baptist has resurrected in some way. By the way, do you want to talk about a guilty conscience? You know, Herod had him put to death, and now he hears about the fame of Jesus and the miraculous things that he's doing, and his first thought is, as you're going to see a little bit later tonight, hearing other people say that it's John the Baptist back from the dead, he assumes that to be true as well. Now, we already saw earlier in our study, back in chapter 11, that John was in prison. You remember back in Matthew chapter 11, we saw that he had been in prison. Well, now we know why he was in prison. The reason he was in prison is he had told Herod, the Tetrarch, that it wasn't right to have his brother, Philip's wife. Now, I'm going to give you a little historical background that might help you even understand the depth of what was really going on. Herod the Tetrarch was one of four sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king who was in charge over uh, Galilee when Jesus was born. You remember when Jesus was born, Herod, the king at that time, he was so upset about some other possible king that he had all the babies killed from two years old and down. That was Herod the Great. He died not long after Jesus was born. But after he died, he had four sons and they all ruled together in different areas for the Romans over Israel. Now, I'm only going to mention three of the sons because they tie to our story tonight. 
All right, one of the sons was Herod the Tetrarch. We see him here as Herod the Tetrarch. His name was Herod Antipas, all right? So if you see Herod Antipas, that's Herod the Tetrarch, all right? He ruled over Galilee. Another son was named Herod, uh, sorry, not Herod, but Aristobulus. So he had Herod Antipas, and another son was named Aristobulus. The reason we mentioned that son of Herod the Great is because Aristobulus had a daughter, and his daughter was named Herodias. Ah, you remember the name Herodias? We just read about her, didn't we? And there's another son. His name was Philip. Are you starting to get the picture yet of what's going on? Herod the Great had four sons. Three of them were Aristobulus, Herod Antipas, and Philip. They're all brothers. Aristobulus gives birth to a girl, and he names her Herodias. She grows up and marries her uncle, Philip, her father's brother, and then not long after that, Herod Antipas, another uncle, convinces her to leave Philip and become his wife. John the Baptist being a prophet, he actually had the nerve to tell the king, you shouldn't be doing that. That's against God's law. And when he did, he was thrown into prison because Herodias hated him. And as we saw here tonight, Herod himself, Herod Antipas, wanted to put him to death. But he feared the people because they all saw John to be a prophet. So he was put in prison. Now we know why he was in prison. And as we see here, because of this girl, Herodias' daughter, dancing and pleasing the king, he makes this silly vow. And the little girl, being young, runs to her mama and says, well, what, what should I ask for? And the mother said, what? Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king had to do it right there and then. And that's how John died. We'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit. Now, go with me to Leviticus chapter 18. I'm going to just kind of show you what the Old Testament law said to give you a picture of the heart of God and at the same time, uh, the passage that most likely John the Baptist was referring to when he told Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch that it wasn't right to have his brother's wife. I mean, already now we see that there's a lot of incest going on already with the girl marrying her uncle and then marrying another uncle. In Leviticus chapter 18, look at verses 1 through 18. We see God's law, laws concerning sexual relationships. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It's your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. 
She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It's depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Look again at verse 16. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. And that's what John the Baptist most likely was referring to when he told Herod Antipas, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. But on top of that, they had already broken most of these. Why? Because they're all close relatives. And the law of God said that he didn't want that. Now Herodias hated John the Baptist, ever since she, he had exposed her sin, and she wanted him dead. But Herod, the Tetrarch, was torn. Now you say, wait a minute. He was torn. We saw in Matthew that he wanted him dead, but he feared the people. Well, there was more to it than that. And that's why we're gonna, I want you to go with me tonight to Mark chapter 6. We're going to look at Mark's account. As I've been sharing with you, you really, really, really need to compare all the gospel accounts of the stories we read in one of the gospels to get a fuller picture of all that's going on. In Mark chapter 6, in verses 14 through 29, you're going to find out that John, sorry, Herod the Tetrarch was torn not only because he wanted him dead and also he feared the people, he himself was kind of intrigued by John the Baptist and he wanted to listen to his teachings some more. Listen to Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah, and others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she couldn't do it. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous man and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him, he, he heard him gladly. But now before I go any further, if you read Mark's account, it looks like Herod doesn't want him put to death. He just wants to listen to him. But Matthew's account shows us that he wanted him put to death as well. But he also was interested and wanted to hear him speak, and he feared because he was a holy man. Matthew tells us he also feared the people because the people of Israel saw him to be a prophet. And so we can see here, there's a whole lot more going on. On verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod's on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste and to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. If you were to keep reading, you'll see 
that Jesus does what next? You see in your Bible, the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. So, Herodias' hatred for John was so evident that when Herod promised her daughter anything she wanted, up to half his kingdom, before we get to her asking for John the Baptist's head, think about what had just been offered. To a woman. To a woman. Half his kingdom. Now, if you know anything, we've already seen it in the story, he's, he's got no problem with moving wives around. And if you've ever heard the history, kings a lot of times would get tired of one and move on. The whole story of Esther is because the king wasn't pleased with how his wife had treated him. And so he got rid of her and had a little beauty pageant to find out who was going to replace her. And ladies would have nothing if the king just decided, I'm done with you. And the Romans, by the way, were really good at divorce. They were masters at it. And here the king says, I'll give you to her daughter. I'll give you whatever you ask for, half my kingdom. And the daughter goes to her mother and says, this is what he's offered. What do I ask for? The mother could have said land, power, all this stuff to protect herself. But she hated John the Baptist so much that she took that opportunity to have him put to death. Remember, she had been wanting him put to death, but she had no power to do it. But now with this loophole, the king had given her the permission to do what she wanted to do. And I'm going to ask you a question. And this isn't just for people in the room. This is for those that are listening online right now. We looked last week at how much we miss out on because of unbelief. I'm going to ask you a different question tonight. How much do we miss out on because of our infatuation with sin, with hatred, resentment, and a thirst for revenge? See, it's one thing to miss out on what God wants to do because we don't believe that he will do it. It's another thing to miss out on what God can do in our lives because we're hanging on to sin and hatred and resentment. The Bible in Psalm 66, 18 says this, if I treasured sin in my heart, the Lord wouldn't hear me. The Bible actually says that actually when we don't treat our wives the way we're supposed to, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, when we don't treat our wives the way we're supposed to, it hinders our prayers. The Bible actually tells that if we're not willing to forgive others, what does Jesus teach? Your heavenly Father won't forgive you. Go to James chapter 4. Go to James chapter 4. I'm not going to spend too, too much time on this tonight. I'm going to share a couple of scriptures that deal with this. I'm going to let the Spirit of God speak. But unfortunately, folks, you'd be amazed at how rampant this is in the church today. People that say, I'll never forgive that person or people that hold on to resentment. It is unbelievably rampant. And I've had too many people say to me, well, I'll forgive them as soon as they ask for forgiveness. That's not how the Bible teaches us to do it. Because Jesus, well, the people weren't asking. He was on the cross saying what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus didn't wait until they asked for forgiveness. He was forgiving and offering that forgiveness, even though the people didn't ask for it. And James chapter 4, remember, you're going to see it in the context here. James is writing to the church. He's writing to believers. He's going to talk to people that have the Spirit of God in them. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Too many people today are so proud that they're not going to ever let go of something because that person did me wrong, and I'm never going to forget. Folks, it's, it's, it's really messing up your walk with the Lord, if that's you. And Herodias' hatred just absolutely had her miss out on so much. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, look at verses 19 through 21. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says this. It said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Folks, how many of you know the story of Saul? Remember King Saul and how God had chosen him to be the king? But because of his disobedience and he didn't do what God said, God chose to replace him and he anointed David to be the next king. But Saul's still king. And David defeats Goliath. Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18 and look at what begins in the heart of, of Saul at this point. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 through 9. In verse Samuel 18, starting in verse 6, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands. To me, they've only ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. By the way, you want to do an interesting study? Watch what happens to Saul from that moment on. His hatred and resentment of David begins to fester and build to the point that the only thing we even see Saul do from now on is just focus everything, all his energy, all his time on how to kill and get rid of David. He tries himself a couple of times. He's chasing him all over Israel. He ends up even getting to the point where he actually consults a witch to hear from God because he's so separated from God at this time. Folks, resentment and unforgiveness will cause you to miss out. On a whole lot that God has for you. I want you to also see something else as well. Saul was upset because people were ascribing to David more glory than him, and he wanted more glory. Let me just chase a quick rabbit for us tonight. Jesus himself said of John the Baptist that none have risen greater than him. None born of women have risen greater than John the Baptist. But how did John the Baptist's life come to an end? He was beheaded because of a stupid vow made by a king to a young girl. 
In our minds, we're thinking, man, don't you think God would going to honor that guy a lot more in this life? No, listen closely to me, folks. The Bible's very, very clear that those of us who are willing to follow Jesus need to look more and more like Jesus and less and less like Satan. And I mean this in this way. The church today talks about dreaming big things for God, achieving great things for God, trying to increase your ministry. And it sounds real good and it'll fill stadiums with that kind of preaching at conferences and people get all worked up. But the Bible actually says that God chose a role for Satan and he wasn't satisfied with his lot in life and he wanted more. But the Bible also says that the father chose a role for the son, Jesus, and he submitted himself to that role, even though that role meant death on a cross. Earlier, John the Baptist, before he was put in prison, was confronted and they said, are you the Christ? And he makes a very interesting statement. He says, a man can only receive what he's been given from above. In other words, I'm not the Christ. My role is to be the friend of the bridegroom. And when the friend of the bridegroom sees the bridegroom coming, his joy is there. But from that moment on, I'm to take the back seat. He must increase. I must decrease. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God's given. I'm going to be speaking coming up in a few weeks uh, in North Carolina to a big church that's got a lot of staff. And they've asked me to come and speak to their staff about unity. And I can't wait to go and show them what we're talking about right now, that one of the greatest hindrances to unity in big churches and ministries is everybody jockeying for position. And I'm going to challenge them to go look at the scriptures where Jesus said, when you go to a banquet, take the lowest seat. And if the master of the house happens to bring you up, that's great. But if you go and choose the high seat, you may be humbled when he says someone more important than you needs to sit here and then you be put down. All through the scriptures, the Bible says that God gives grace to who? The humble. Those who say, if this is all that God has for me, I'm good. Beware of the attitude of measuring whether or not other people in the kingdom are getting more glory or more attention than you. And you be happy with the role that God has for you. And if he chooses to increase it, it's he who increased it and he gets the glory. We're not going to chase that rabbit anymore. But let me just tell you, the Bible is very, very clear that resentment and hatred will cause us to miss out on a whole lot. Now, go back to Matthew chapter 14, but before we start looking at the story of the feeding of 5,000, we have to look at the other gospel accounts to get a little bit more context. I really want you to see the full context, like I talked about at the beginning before we started our study tonight. The feeding of the 5,000 has been taught for years as a story by itself. I'm going to show you tonight that it actually is a reteaching of a previous lesson. And John the Baptist being beheaded is tied to it. It's all connected. But Matthew, if you remember from our study, and we've been showing you this, and we're going to keep reminding you of this all the way through, Matthew is not writing chronologically. You try to read Matthew and think that this happened before this, and then this happened before that, it's going to mess you up. Because Matthew compiles episodes from Jesus' life. Mark and Luke do a better job of showing us a timeline of what happened. And Mark and Luke bring out something of the story of the feeding of the 5,000 that Matthew doesn't bring out. So go with me real quick again. I told you to put a bookmark here in Matthew 14. Go to Mark chapter 6. 
Because I want you to see that Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, and John the Baptist being beheaded, actually happens between the time of Jesus sending out his disciples two by two to go preach the good news of the kingdom and when they return. You're going to see this in Mark chapter 6. Look at verses 7 through 13. And he, Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. What happens next in our story in verses 14 through 29? John the Baptist is beheaded. So this is happening while he's already sent the disciples out two by two. They're out taking weeks and days and months to go travel and preach. During that time, John the Baptist is beheaded. Look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, as we know from the story, many people see them. They run around on foot. Jesus has compassion. Mark brings out that not only is he healing them like Matthew said, he's also teaching them. But in Mark's account, too, you'll see that the disciples come to Jesus and they say it's late in the day. Send them away so they can get something to eat. And what does Jesus say? You feed them. That's very, very important. Because like I said, if you go back and look at Matthew's account, go back real quick. You've got a finger here in Mark 6. Go back to Matthew 14. Should be quick because I told you to put a bookmark there. Look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard about this, what did he just heard about? The death of John, death of John the Baptist. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot. Matthew sure reads like Jesus is all by himself, doesn't it? But now Mark shows us, is Jesus totally by himself? No, he's got 12 disciples with him in this boat. Go with me to Luke chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 6. In Luke chapter 9. Verses 1 through 6, and he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Verses 7 through 9, we see how Herod is perplexed about, John, about Jesus because he thinks it's John the Baptist. Verse 10, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him and, they, and he welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. I'm going to make a statement to you that may surprise some of you. The birth of Jesus Christ is not in all four Gospels. 
The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is in all four Gospels. And there's only one other episode in the life of Jesus besides his death and his resurrection. There's only one other episode in Jesus's life that's in all four Gospels. You want to know what it is? The feeding of the 5,000. Now, as you're going to see later on in our study next week, that there's a feeding of the 4,000. That's not in all four Gospels. But the feeding of the 5,000 is, and I say this to you for a reason, I believe God has it in all four Gospels because it's a very, very important part of the Christian understanding who God is and how God works. And so what we've seen so far now is Jesus has sent his disciples out two by two to go preach the good news of the kingdom. While they're out, John the Baptist is beheaded. Jesus hears about it around the time that the disciples come back from their journey. And Jesus wants to get alone and spend some time dealing with the death of John the Baptist. And at the same time, the 12 disciples have just come back and proven that they didn't learn the lesson that he was teaching when he sent them out two by two. Now you say, what lesson are we talking about? Well, let me ask you a question. When he sent them out to go to the surrounding towns and villages, his instructions were to what? Go and stay. If they didn't listen, go on to the next town. This was going to take days, weeks, months for them to travel around and preach. What were they to bring? Nothing. If you got a walking stick, that's fine. You get sandals, that's fine. Were they allowed to bring any money? No. Were they allowed to bring any food? Were they allowed to bring any change of clothes? What was Jesus trying to teach them when he sent them out on this mission that was going to take them to do what he says and trust in his power and his provision to make it work? Let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever actually headed out on a, on a trip and not brought provisions? I mean, let's think about it. We all stand at baggage claim with everybody else waiting for our stuff to come off the plane, don't we? Actually, I'm going to tell you a true story. Becky and I, at one point when we were first married, in our first year of our marriage, actually did something like this because we believe God led us to. I don't remember if it was Thanksgiving or Christmas, but we were in New Orleans. We were a young couple. We had just gotten married in, in uh, July of 1990. It was Christmas or, or Thanksgiving or Christmas of 1990. I don't remember which it was. And we really wanted to go home from New Orleans where I was a seminary student to go. And I was also on staff at a church part time. We really wanted to go home to Florida here in this area, but we didn't have any money for gas. I mean, when I say no money for gas, we had no money for gas. But we felt like God was telling, challenging us to trust him and to just start driving south from New Orleans. Now, on the way out, we lived in Kenner, which is just west of New Orleans. We stopped at the church where I was associate pastor. Again, it was a holiday. There wasn't hardly anybody there. We just pulled up in front of the church offices sideways across the parking spaces. Becky sat in the front of the pickup truck. I ran in because I needed to get something out of my office. Don't remember what it was. But as I come out of my office, the senior pastor is leaning against the window of the truck talking to Becky. I go around. I get in the truck and the pastor leaves, goes into the church. And I look over at Becky and she's bawling. And I got to be honest with you, I got mad. I thought, what did he say to you? What did he say to you? Got you so upset. And she said, he told me to have a nice trip. And then he handed me this. And she showed me a $100 bill. You have to realize, when we left New Orleans to go to Florida, we hadn't told our parents. We hadn't told mine or hers. We didn't tell anybody that we didn't have enough gas to get there, let alone get there and back. And in 1990, 
$100 will get you a lot of gas. It got us all. We hadn't even gotten out of New Orleans, and God had already provided the, all the money we needed. And he was teaching us what he was trying to teach the disciples. You go do what I ask you to do. Watch me provide. Watch me do it. Now, let me just say something to you. Unfortunately, in most of our churches today, that's a foreign concept. I deal with too many churches that spend all their time looking at, is it in the budget? You ever heard that stuff? And it's not in the budget. We can't do it. We don't have the money. I know God wants us to hire this staff member, but we just don't have the money. Maybe once we get the money, then we'll obey God. And folks, let me just say something to you. As you're going to see through the study tonight and next week, God is going to continually over and over and over again keep putting you in situations where you have no ability to take care of it so that you can learn how he will provide with his power. But what we do is we try to figure out how we can make it work. Oh, we don't walk in obedience because we don't know how it's going to work. So the disciples come back and report what? All that what? What's that word? If you don't mind marking in your Bible, circle that word they, highlight that word they, underline the word they. That's the key part. He sent them out and said, no food, no money, no change of clothes. Watch how I take care of you. Watch how I provide. Actually, later on in Luke chapter 22, right before he goes to the cross, he turns to his disciples and he said, when I sent you out two by two, did you lack anything? And they said, no. Well, here they come back and report to Jesus all that they had done. And Jesus thinks to himself, I need to go get alone and deal with John the Baptist's death. And I got 12 knuckleheads now that have come back and shown they didn't learn the lesson. So what does he say? Come with me by yourselves in a boat to a what? A desolate place. Isn't that interesting? And we're going to deal with it. And I'm glad you brought that out, Chris, to rest. You're going to find that the def God's definition of rest is not our definition of rest. I'm sure the disciples were thinking, hey, cool, we're going to go get in the boat. We're going to go somewhere on the shore. And we're going to put our feet in the water and lay in hammocks. But if you know, when they get to where they're going, the crowd's already there. Jesus does all that he does in the feeding of the 5,000. And then, as you're going to see later on in our study next week, he puts them in a boat, sends them off. They can't even get across the lake without his help. He walks on the water. When they get to the shore, there's people there. Where's this rest? We'll deal with that next week. But they're thinking rest. Jesus says, come to a desolate place and rest. Folks, let me just say something to you. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. You'll see that God did this with the nation of Israel as well. Right as he brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, where's the first place he takes them? To the desert, to the wilderness, where there's no food and no water. And if you had money, it wouldn't do you any good because there's nothing to buy. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. God says, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The first thing God does to the nation of Israel 
is take them into a place where there's no food and no water. And what's he trying to teach them? Depend on him. His power, his provision. What happened to Jesus when he began his ministry? The Bible says that right after he was baptized, he was led by the Spirit where? Into the wilderness and the desert. To be what? Tempted and tested by the devil. Oh, by the way, if you go look, the devil's temptations are take things into your own hands. Don't rely on the Father. Don't trust him and wait on him. Do this for yourself. If you are the son of God and you're hungry, just turn these stones into bread. And he says, nope, man shall not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Oh, well, tell you what you do. I'll just want you to throw yourself up, put yourself up in the pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself off. And you, the, Psalm 91 says that the angels will take care of you and you won't dash your foot against a stone. All these people see this miraculous thing you do. They'll all believe in you. And Jesus says it's not right to put God to a test. Oh, there are times that we can test God. But according to the scriptures, it's the times that God sets the test. When he says, test me in this and see if I won't provide for you. But we don't determine what the test is, Jesus said. Then lastly, of course, Satan comes and says, I know you want all these kingdoms given to you and you don't have to go to the cross to do it. Just worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms because they're mine right now. And again, Jesus passed the test by relying on the father and not taking it into his own hands. Let me ask you a question. Have you all ever noticed that sometimes when you finally get enough money to get new tires on the car, the washing machine breaks? Has anybody else had that kind of stuff happen? As soon as you think, hey, we're going to get somewhere, tax season, and you actually owe money and you didn't think you did. It, listen to me, folks. We need to learn the lesson of the loaves. Jesus will continually keep putting us in situations to humble us, to remind us of our dependence on him. With that will also come a test. The humbling situation he puts us in where we don't know how we're going to pay the bill. We don't know what we're going to do because the doctor says we have cancer or whatever it is that God puts us through. That humbling situation that reminds us that we can't fix it is also a test. God said, I tested you to see whether or not you would obey my commandments. Let me ask you a question. Was the test to find out if so God could find out what our response would be? Very good. No, because he already knows. So who's the test for? It's for us. Let me illustrate it to you this way. If I want to move you from here to here, I can't move you from there to here if you think you're already here. See, because if, if I know you're actually over there and I want to move you to here, but you think you're here, you're not going to let me move you because you think you're already there, right? So if I need to move you from where you really are to where I want you to be, and you think you're already there, what have I got to do before I can move you to here? I've got to show you where you really are. Years ago, when we first moved to Florida, actually second time for me, uh, our family moved here in 1984, uh, back when this church was First Baptist Palm Bay. And that's when we joined then, back in the day. And uh, then we moved away as I pastored in New Orleans and then Chicago, and in 2000, God blessed for us to come, and I became pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic, and he blessed us with a beautiful house with four bedrooms, three and a half bathrooms, so three ba four bedrooms, three bathrooms, and an in-ground pool in the backyard with five exits off the back of the house to this pool. Problem was, when we moved here 20 years ago, 
our children were six, four, and one. And the one-year-old, AJ, thought he could swim, but he couldn't. And we were forever worrying if the doors were locked because he wasn't afraid of the water. He's one of those kids, you've seen him before, who would just go out and end up in the bottom and not even realize that they're on the bottom. And so one day I decided I, have to, I had lifeguard training. I, I want to teach my son to swim, but he wouldn't let me because he thought he didn't need teaching. He thought he was here. I knew he was here. So I said to him, I said, AJ, you can swim? Yes. You don't need dad to teach you? No. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a swimming test. Then I turned to Becky and I said, go where you can't hear or see what is about to happen next. Lock yourself in the bedroom, plug your ears, play music. Do not listen and watch what happens next. And when she got out of earshot and out of sight, I took my son, who thought he could swim, fully clothed, and I threw him in the deep end of the pool, which, by the way, is just shy of seven feet deep. Let me ask you a question. Did he pass the test or fail the test? Failed it wonderfully. You know why? You know why I was excited that he failed it? Because the test wasn't for me to find out if he could swim or not. I knew he couldn't swim. The test was to show him where he really was. And when he had drank enough of the pool and thought he was going to die, I jumped in, pulled him out, and guess who was now teachable? Guess who was now not going anywhere near that pool? But listen to me, folks. I want to show hands tonight. Confession's good for the soul. How many of you have ever failed one of the tests God's given to you? Let me say something to you that you need to hear. When you failed it, God wasn't mad. When you failed the test, God wasn't mad. You see, Satan comes in and says, you failed that test. God's upset with you. God says, actually, no. If you realize what I really wanted you to learn from you failing the test, I'm actually glad that you failed the test. Now I can teach you. Peter, you think you'll die for me. Uh, let me just say something to you. I know you better than you know yourself. And you're, you think you're here, but you're really there. And before the rooster even crows, you're going to deny you even know me three times. You can imagine Peter says, uh-uh. Well, guess what? He put him in a situation, left him on his own, and it was to humble him, and it was to test him. But what, was the God, what did God say back in Deuteronomy? He said, there was a third thing I was doing. I'm, I'm putting you in situations over and over to remind you of your dependence. It's also a test to show you where you really are, what your heart response is. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to put it in your own hands? Are you going to worry? Are you going to freak out? Are you going to look for someone else instead of me to fix it? And with that came a third thing. He said, I made you hungry and I fed you with manna, which you had never seen before, nor had your fathers ever seen before, to teach you that man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that continually comes from the mouth of the Lord. Let me say something to you, folks. As you're going to see from the scriptures in our study in the next few weeks, God's solution to whatever situation he's putting you in probably won't look like how he solved it last time. Because he's trying to teach us how to walk with him and listen to him a day at a time. You've heard me talk about this before. Jesus never duplicated how he did anything. Even though he's God and he doesn't change and his truth never changes and his principles never change, his methods always changed. Strike the rock. Next time, speak to the rock. Never heal the blind person the same way twice. 
We actually see in one of the accounts, he spits in the ground, makes mud, and puts mud on the man's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus healed people of blindness every time by spitting in the ground and making mud, what would we be doing today? Because we think the power is in the method. The power is not in the method. It's in the one who determines the method. And one of the things tearing our churches up today is we're fighting over methods. We're fighting over worship methods and preaching methods and evangelism methods because we think how God did it for me is how he's supposed to do it for you. And that's one of the things tearing the churches up today is we're fighting over methods when Jesus doesn't duplicate his methods so that we'll learn individually to walk with him and churches to follow him and his plan for each church as we go. Do you realize that God wants you to, in your daily life with him, Learn how to do what he's called you to do with his power and his provision. Write these scriptures down. Time-wise, I don't have time to take you there. Write these scriptures down. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. I want you to go look at them. You'll see that whoever uses the gift that God's given them, they need to do it with the strength that God provides. You're going to see that. That you're to use the gift God's given you with the strength that God provides. Here's another one. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul says, To this end I labor and struggle with all his energy, which so powerfully works within me. We all know Philippians 2, 12 and 13, how we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does verse 13 say? For it's God who works in us both to desire or will and to act according to his good purpose. Not only did he send the disciples out to go do ministry with his power and his provision, we also need to be doing ministry in the same way. Let me make a statement to you that you need to hear. The term and the phrase burnt out should never, ever have ever been phrased in the church. There's no such thing as burnout if you're doing the ministry God's called you to in His power, in His ministry. Will His Holy Spirit ever run out? If we're burnt out, we're either doing something God has not asked us to do. Well, the nominating committee nominated me for it, so they're not your Lord. We're either doing something God has asked us not to do and he's not going to empower it, or we're doing what God's asked us to do, but we're doing it in our own strength. Folks, learn the lesson of the loaves. It's not up to you to make it work. It's not up to you, but you need to find out what is he saying, what's he wanting you to do, and then trust him and do what he says and watch him provide. So they come back and they report to Jesus all that they had done. And Jesus heals, he teaches, the disciples come and they say, it's late in the day, send them away, go get something to eat. And what does Jesus say? We've already seen it. What? He says, you feed them. In other words, let me paraphrase it for you. I just sent you guys out with no money and no food. And you came back and reported all you had done. I didn't get to see this. You sound pretty impressive. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull up a seat here on a rock. Knock yourselves out. You feed them. Show me what you can do. I want to watch this. By the way, uh, what was their reaction? They panicked. They pulled their calculators out. Yeah, Abacus probably. Yeah. Eight months wages won't be enough to give everybody a bite. By the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but it was Philip who did the math. You say, how do you know this? Where do you get that Philip did the math? Oh, remember it's in all four Gospels? Let's look at John. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Look at verses 1 and following. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. 
and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Oh, look. He said this to what? To test him. For he already knew what he was going to do. There it is. It's a test. He, just like when he sent them out with no money and no food, he was showing them and testing them about, and, and, and trying to show them that his provision and his power, they don't learn the lesson. They come back, report all that they have done. He says, come away, i got to reteach the lesson. And he puts them in another situation, and he backs away and says, how are you going to handle it? Folks, many of our churches today are actually in that situation. God hadn't left, but he's sitting on the rock waiting for you to realize that your constitution and your bylaws and your church manual isn't what's going to solve it, but it's prayer and saying, Lord, what would you have us do? We're in a situation where we don't know how to solve it. We don't know what to do next. And he will show you, and then you're to trust him and watch how he provides. Now, we also see from John's account that a little boy had the five loaves and the two fish. Now, when I grew up in Sunday school, they used to have flannel board. You remember flannel board? And if your Sunday school lesson was like mine, they had five loaves of Wonder Bread, didn't they? Weren't they five loaves of bread and two like grouper? A little boy wasn't carrying around five loaves of Wonder Bread and two grouper. It was probably five little biscuit cakes and two sardines. And then Jesus says to them, you go and have the people sit down in groups of 50s and 100s. Now, if you read two of the gospel accounts, it says Jesus commanded the people to sit down. Two of the other accounts say Jesus told the disciples to tell the people. So they're both right. Jesus did the commanding. But who were the actual ones who had to go out into a crowd of over 5,000 people and say, sit down, Jesus is going to feed you? The disciples had to be the ones who did it. At this point, do they know how he's going to feed everybody? No. All they know is that all the amount of food they have is five little biscuit cakes and two sardines. And again, by faith, they have to go out and say to people, would you get in groups of 50s and 100s? Jesus wants to feed you before you go. And I promise you, I promise you that there were people in that crowd that said, how? We're in a desolate place. There's no food here. And their only answer could be, we don't know. Please don't ask me that question. But Jesus said he's going to do it. And how much is left over? I'll get right to you. How much is left over? Twelve basketfuls. One for each knucklehead to pick up. <laughs> Go ahead, Debbie. It's amazing, too, that he used a child's, a child's lunch instead of a grown-up's. Yes, it is amazing that he used a child's lunch instead of a grown-up's. There must have been huge baskets. I don't know how big the baskets were. The Bible doesn't say. Now, listen closely. You're going to see, I'm going to hint at a few things tonight as we close. Come back next week because there's so much more to this. You're going to see that the disciples, even after picking up 12 basketfuls of stuff left over, still didn't learn the lesson. You want proof? Go with me to Mark chapter 6. We'll deal with this more next week, but I'm going to give you a little commercial for next week's study. Look at Mark chapter 6 and look at verse 50. Actually, we'll, we'll go to verse 45. Verse 45, immediately, this is after the feeding of the 5,000. 
Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Stop real quick. Why does Jesus put the disciples in a boat, send them off by themselves, and then go off by himself to pray? Why is he going off by himself to pray? He still hadn't had the chance. Way to go, Chris. Remember, he had heard about John the Baptist's death. And he wanted to go get away. Of course, he knew all this was going to happen. Listen, I mean, just say this to you. As you feel in your heart, I need to go spend some time alone with the Father. Don't be surprised if life doesn't get a little crazy. But don't let the craziness of life keep you from getting alone with the Father. After he dealt with the craziness, he then still goes off and spends some time by himself. As you know in the story, uh, when evening came, uh, the the boat was out on the sea and he was alone in the land. We'll deal uh, next week with how long they've been rowing. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it's I. Don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Look closely. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Isn't that interesting? The walking on the water, I'll show you that next week. But the walking on the water is tied to the lesson of the loaves. The lesson of the loaves is tied to him sending them out two by two. And I'm going to show you a pattern of Jesus continually putting the disciples in another situation and another situation and another situation to keep trying to reteach them the same lesson. The same thing he's been doing from day one that he did with the nation of Israel, that he did with his son Jesus. But he passed the test God is continually trying to teach us about his power and his provision. And stop thinking, as soon as I get a better job, every, this won't happen ever anymore. As soon as everything gets squared away, everything, we're all trying to get to that point where we have no more worries. You're going to be very, very disappointed in this life if you think you're going to ever get to a point where there's no more worries. Because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I've heard too many people say, God will never give you more than you can bear. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that everything is more than we can bear. The Bible does say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that it will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear because he'll be there to help you walk you through it. But listen to me. God's going to continually give you more than you can bear. He's going to continually put you through situations like a boot where he has to teach you some things about yourself, some things about him. For me, it's been cancer or back surgery. And now I've had the back surgery and my knee's now messing up. And I don't know what's going on with all y'all, but I'm pretty sure it's the same stuff. And listen to me. Welcome to our world. And that is actually, it's actually how God works. And so tonight, let me just say this to you. Embrace the lesson of the lows. Embrace it. Because God's going to keep doing things over and over and over to remind us of our dependence on him. Those situations will show us where we are. By the way, some of these tests you're going to pass. Some of these tests you're actually going to have faith. And, go, and you're going to go, hey, I didn't worry so much about that one like I did the time before. And it's actually going to be a time where you realize you're growing. But you're going to be in another one. And you're going to be in another one. And another one. Jesus was given the same test, like I said, and he passed it. Why? Because he 
when the test came, put his eyes immediately to the Father. Do that yourself. Do that yourself. I love you. See you next week. We'll continue our study then.